Thanks for listening to Reimagining the Internet from the Institute for Digital Public Infrastructure at UMass Amherst. We're hosting an ongoing discussion with researchers, activists, academics, techies, and journalists about what's wrong with the Internet and how we might fix it. I'm your host, Ethan Zuckerman. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Reimagining the Internet. This is an ongoing podcast series from the Institute for Digital Public Infrastructure at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. My name is Ethan Zuckerman. I'm your host. And today uh, we're with uh, tech columnist for the New York Times, author, investigative journalist, uh, thorn in the side of Facebook and many uh, technology platform companies. I, I think one of the, the people doing the best work right now uh, in technology writing, uh, Kevin Roos. How are you, Kevin? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Thanks so much for, for being with us. This is an ongoing conversation with smart people who follow the tech industry, um, seeing if we can get beyond just sort of calling out what, what's wrong with tech and actually trying to get towards solutions for social media that could actually be good for us uh, rather than just uh, not destroy our democracies. And so we've been starting these conversations with really simple questions. What, what is wrong with social media at present? Uh, and, and what do you think the companies and the rest of us should be doing uh, to fix those problems? Uh, that's a, a big question, a big couple of questions. Um, right now, I think the, the problems with social media vary widely by platform um, and by, by even functions within platforms. Yep. Um, so you know, I think one of the things that unites a lot of these problems um, is that they were built by companies um, that were looking to attract growth, that were looking to attract users and engagement. They were built around the idea that the less friction is involved in sharing something or um, posting something or clicking on something, the better. Um, and so they have really um, sort of made design decisions and monetization decisions, not thinking through downside risk, not thinking through abuse potential, um, just purely trying to make the numbers go in the right direction. Um, they've been hugely successful at that. These companies are very big and very profitable. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I've been writing a lot recently about automation and mm -hmm. um, I have a book coming out next year about AI and automation and the way it is changing what it means to be a human. And I think a lot of this, we don't, we don't tend to think of the automation AI conversation in the same breath as the social media conversation, but I think they're related. I think these companies um, suffer uh, from, from an overconfidence in automation. Um, so, so you've talked about this a lot with, uh, with the rabbit hole work. You did a really excellent, eight-part podcast series that was looking at um, how YouTube recommends videos and the possibility uh, that YouTube is pushing people towards increasingly radical content. How, how does that question about automation and sort of overconfidence in automation come into play uh, around something like YouTube? Well, I think we, we see on YouTube one of the most advanced forms of automation ever built. I mean, 
Google has the best AI engineers in the world. They publish the most papers, they win the most awards. And for much of the last decade, the biggest, most profitable AI project at Google has been YouTube recommendations. Mm. Um, 70% of watch time on the platform comes from recommendations. Right. And that's a company that is making billions of dollars a year. So it's, it's not, I think when we think of sort of the cutting edge of AI, we think of like an open AI, you know, lab or some, you know, Carnegie Mellon, you know, research project or generated text where we start GPT three or something like that. But like YouTube recommendations are, are the cutting edge of AI research in this country and probably in the world. Um, And I don't think we ever think about that. We just sort of think, Oh, that's, that's like what every other platform does is it recommends stuff. Um, so I think that the, the confidence that these firms have in the ability of machine learning to do things like um, surface relevant and engaging content to people um, is based on a pretty shallow definition of engaging and relevant. Um, it's based on what they can measure, which is watch time, which is clicks, which is shares. Um, and I think that their inability to look deeper than that to sort of hook these algorithms to some metric that is more substantive, um, such as, you know, whether something is true or not, for example, right. um, is, is one of their great failures and, and the source of a lot of their problems. And you've been, you've been making this point lately on Facebook, um, looking through the crowd tangled uh, data and, and let's start by specifying that um, Facebook says that CrowdTangle is not necessarily an accurate picture of what's most shared on their site. At the same time, they also make clear that they won't give you any other information. <laughs> right. Other I'm wrong according to their secret data that they won't share. That, that's right. Yes. Uh, I, I'm in, in one of my other instances, I'm, I'm writing a paper about how we study and audit the platforms and the story of you uh, crossing swords with, with Facebook over that is actually the opening story of the paper. Um, but this, this problem with the logic of automation, the logic of algorithms comes out there as well. What's the point that you're sort of trying to make in, in showing this string of highly emotional, um, often let's go with factually challenged, uh, right-leaning content, um, gaining sort of top, top engagement marks on Facebook? Well, I think my point in showing that to people on Twitter was was just pretty simple. It was, this is happening, and you probably don't know about it, mm-hmm. um, because I think people who spend time on Twitter, journalists, researchers, um, sort of high-information news consumers, um, the conversation there is pretty divorced from what's happening on Facebook, which is 10 times as large. And my goal was not to prove a point about politics or algorithms or anything like that. When I started, I was just sort of seeing this data and saying, I cannot believe how different this is than what I'm seeing on my Twitter feed. And I bet I want to push you on this question of what would we do to, to make things better? There's at least three things going on with the algorithms that you're talking about. The, the first is that they may be hiding from us content that we should know about, even if we don't want to see it. Um, you probably don't know about PewDiePie because you may not need PewDiePie in your life, but as a citizen, it's probably a good idea to, to know who he is and, and what's going on with that. 
Second, there's the danger that the algorithms lead us down a rabbit hole, that we start following um, someone who's talking about self-improvement and very quickly we find ourselves talking about white nationalism or uh, really uh, horrific uh, misogyny. Uh, and then the third is that it just turns out that, you know, humans are pretty awful a good chunk of the time. And that when you put forward uh, a Facebook or a YouTube, uh, a lot of what people create uh, turns out to be pretty miserable and, and stuff that's, uh, that's very hard to look at and, and hard to know how to wrestle with. Is the solution that we build these things without the algorithms or... or um, what's the way that we sort of go after that, that cluster of problems? I actually, I, I think I dis, and this is strange for me to be casting myself in the role of, 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 uh, you know, defender of humans here, but I, I actually don't think, I don't think humans are like at their core bad. Like, I, I don't think most people wake up in the morning and say like, how could I enrage myself and others? How could I divide myself from others? Like, I, I don't think that's how we're wired. And yet I think that's the kind of behavior that these platforms are built to incentivize. Not because Mark Zuckerberg's evil or Jack Dorsey's evil or Susan Wojcicki's evil and they want to tear society apart, but I just don't think they, they understand the sort of, um, the decisions that they've made around how to measure too much time and, 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 you know, sort of maximize certain forms of engagement and what that produces in people. So I, I actually don't know that I think that we're all just wired this way and that these platforms just reflect human nature, but I do think- I've spent too much time on 4chan. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I also spend a lot of time on 4chan, which, which makes it weird, but I, I, I do think that communities have, to, to use a very unscientific term, like vibes, like, like when you go into a space in the physical world, like that, the design of that space, like teaches you how to act in that space. Um, if you go into, you know, if you go into a, a, a very sort of austere and imposing, you know, government building, um, the design of that space, the architecture, the columns, the, the layout, like it tells you something about how you are supposed to behave in that space. And I think the same is true of online platforms that when people go on 4chan, talk a lot or they go about, into a um, Facebook norms group for the Boogaloo movement, or they go onto a YouTube channel so some of the work for that I'm a white nationalist, is kind of trying the, to the design of that community, the, the architecture of the platform has a and lot so for to me, do the with Facebook how they logic. will ultimately behave. We, we talk a lot about um, norms and affordances when we look at different platforms. So some of the work that I'm doing right now is kind of trying to map what I think of as, as the Facebook logic. And so for me, the Facebook logic, of course, is as you're identifying um, high engagement. Um, it's based in part on the economic model, right? We're based on surveillance capitalism. So we need you both to, to stay and share your eyeballs, but we also need information about you. Either you need to put up information or you, um, you need to give us behavioral data so that we can follow you and sell the ads. But it has other aspects to it. And, and part of it is centralization and sort of facelessness. Um, everybody sees more or less the same Facebook. You can't change the affordances. Um, the moderation is invisible, central, behind the scenes, wholly non-transparent. 
So once you sort of get your head around that logic, you can think about different logics, right? Like Reddit operates on a very different logic. You move into a space on Reddit and it's still ad supported. It's still tracking you. But the governance there has been handed to a team of moderators and they say, this is r slash awe. And if it's not a cute animal, you can't put it there. And by the way, we actually have defined cute very specifically. You can't put up your puppy who's recovering from surgery because that's making people feel bad. That's not actually cute. And if you don't like it, you can become a moderator and sort of become part of that. So for, for me, I think that notion of taking the logics seriously makes a ton of sense. Facebook, in some ways, to me, fails so much because it is one logic designed for everything two billion people might conceivably do on a social media platform. And it's also one in which they have no control over its governor and how, how the speech sort of ends up working on it. Yeah, and I think the, the other piece of this that you've identified is that human-led governance is pretty effective. Decentralized governance. Um, Wikipedia is our most functional social network. <laughs> um, and we don't think of it as a social network, but it is. And its product is, is, is knowledge and is accuracy. And that's what's valued in that community. And when you go, if you go into a Wikipedia page and start messing around, like you're going to get chastised, like you're going to get banned. People will, you know, moderators have sort of a vested interest in keeping it civil and, and, and accurate and not allowing a ton of vandalism. And so there are norms in that community. Um, so I think that, you know, part of what Facebook is running up against is just scale. Um, yeah. um, but I also think it's a willful, I don't think any of this is an accident. I think they designed it this way. Um, they are like so invested in this idea that uh, algorithms can do as good or better a job at, at, Things like, you know, assessing um, hate speech um, at things like, you know, choosing relevant information for people at, you know, divining authority um, for various news sources. Um, they just have really underinvested in humans as a source of, of guidance and wisdom on the job of providing information to two or three billion people. I don't want to I don't want to lose. Um the, the algorithms piece of it, but I actually do want to dig in on your, your provocation that, that Wikipedia is, you know, one of our most successful social networks. I, I think that's absolutely true. I would say you've got two things that work there. One is a norm, um, which is uh, MPOB, neutral point of view, and this idea that we're just going to batter stuff back and forth until we get something that we can all more or less agree with. And it may take the rough edges off of it. It may give us something that's sort of smooth and comfortable and, and, and not necessarily as beautifully written, um, but it's something that we can get our heads around. There's also some incredible technical affordances. And, and probably the easiest one uh, to think about is the ability to roll back. Um, the idea that with a click, you can basically say, nope, vandalism, sorry, not worth it. And um, that's an incredibly different logic you know, either than the chans where you say whatever you want and, um, you know, the, the, the stream of time sort of brushes it away or, but, but let me push you a little further. Can, can you imagine a vision of social media that isn't just sort of less toxic than the patterns that you've identified, 
um, but is, is good for us, is something that actually helps us as citizens? Or, or is the answer just that we've got to step away from this stuff and, uh, and step off, offline or, or into other forms of storytelling? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, I don't think these platforms are, I don't think they need to be destroyed to be, to be better. Um, and I think that, you know, even within some of these very flawed companies, we see examples of things that are better or worse. So like, take, for example, like Instagram, mm-hmm. Instagram, um, you know, it has, you could rattle off a litany of harms, you know, self-image, things like that. But I think most people would agree that on the whole, it's, it's a, the, in- the information on Instagram has a higher integrity than the information on Facebook. Why is that? Partly, I think it's because Instagram has chosen not to add features that might degrade the quality of, its, of, of the information on there and make it feel less intimate, less personal. So there's no native reshare on Instagram. Mm-hmm. You can't click a button and share something. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also no links on Instagram, mm-hmm. which removes a whole category of misbehavior um, that has plagued Facebook, which is this sort of clickbait economy that has grown up both in politics and outside of it. And Facebook owns Instagram. Like it's not a secret that you can do these things, that you can have a successful platform without those features. Um, But they're so invested in the architecture of, you know, the big blue app that it's not clear to me that they're ever going to do that. But they have an example right there in their own company of a social network that is sure it could have maybe added 5%, you know, daily active users by putting in a native reshare button. Mm -hmm. It could have maybe gotten, you know, more publishers, more invested in the platform by adding links. Like these decisions have been weighed inside the company and they've chosen not to do them. And so I think it's, it's long-term Goldman Sachs always has this thing about how they're long-term greedy. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think about that a lot in the context of tech firms, which I think are very, um, short-term focused. I think they're very focused on next quarter's, you know, KPIs and, and, you know, next quarter's, you know, monthly actives. And I just think they, um, they could have been a little bit long-term greedier when it came to things like creating um, sort of limiting features that might degrade the quality of their services. You, you can you can shear a sheep a lot of times and you can skin it only once. And uh, may, maybe the answer is Facebook in becoming uh, this wildly popular network. Do, do you see any hope for for Facebook or YouTube changing? You, you've been, you know, engaged in some some pretty fierce and, and high profile fights. Do you think the reporting that you're doing is having a difference? Do you see them making any changes? I certainly hope so. I mean, I hope that what I'm, what I've been harping on and yelling about for the last three years has, has mattered. Um, I think it has. Um, and I've heard from people, you know, inside these companies that, um, that actually what sort of that their, their internal criticism resonates more loudly when it is in harmony with external criticism. Yeah. Um, and that they actually sort of appreciate the, you know, obviously they don't appreciate all of the criticism, but in certain areas, like for QAnon, for example, that it actually really helped the people inside Facebook um, to have people on the outside sort of drawing attention to it and putting pressure on executives because often, you know, it's no secret these companies act in response to media pressure. Um, So I, I, I think they have changed. I mean, YouTube 
changed its recommendations algorithm. They said it's been hugely effective in reducing, you know, the the growth of um, some channels that were on the extreme end. I believe that because I, you know, I see these creators who used to, you know, get millions of views on everything they posted now complaining that they can't get, you know, a hundred thousand views on their videos. Um, and so I think that they have done some admirable things there that have probably cut into growth, but, um, but, may ultimately have saved them a lot of headaches. Yeah, I don't think these are irredeemable um, platforms. I just think that um, they have to choose something other than the path of least resistance. They have to choose something other than growth to be their guiding, their, their North Star. Do, do we see a, a regulatory role in, in this at all? Do, do you think the way to do this is to sort of expose what's what's going badly at these platforms and, and let people agitate inside for change? Or do you think Congress or the FTC or, or the FCC um, is going to end up putting on substantial pressure at some point that, that's going to force a change to this landscape? Yeah, I, I think regulation has a huge role. I mean, I think that um, I used to cover Wall Street and um, regulation has really changed Wall Street. Um, it is still, you know, there's still some unsavory stuff going on, but it is much harder for for big banks to take advantage of of consumers in the ways that they did before the financial crisis. Um, and I think that was, you know, the choice, the result of a lot of hard choices and a lot of good um, regulatory action. And I and I actually do think there's a, a a good parallel in the world of tech because I think that in the banking world, one of the things that they did that was I thought showed a lot of foresight was they, they broke out the biggest banks, the ones that they call them the, the SIFIs, the systemically important financial institutions, the, the really big banks that if they fail can really, that those failures can cascade throughout the system. And I think that we could do the same thing in tech where, you know, once you reach, let's say a hundred million users, yeah. you become a significantly, a system systematically important technology firm and your algorithms have to be open source now. Yeah. We, ha we have yeah. to be able to see how you are recommending content and what, what factors you are, what metrics you are maximizing for. We, we actually have to be able to see your KPIs. Like, what are you trying to do? Um, and, and I think that that kind of regulation could make a big difference in, um, in sort of reining in some of the excesses and in just providing more transparency. Right now, we have no idea how these platforms work despite years of investigative reporting and attempts by regulators to subpoena documents and interview people, we have no idea yeah. how yeah. Facebook or YouTube or Twitter chooses what to show us. What, one thing that I've been starting to suggest in my work is that we actually have firms that can do algorithmic audits much in the same way that an accounting firm can come in and look at privileged information. It has a fiduciary responsibility to the company, so it's not gonna share it around. But it also has professional responsibility to be bound by um, certain standards of accounting and to raise their hand when those things are being violated. Uh, it's a tough solution because you, you have to establish those standards and then sort of build this whole space of algorithmic auditors. Um, but to me, in many ways, it, it, it may be more realistic than trying to open source these algorithms, which gets a little hard because it makes them highly gameable. Uh, but one way or another, I think that notion up significant technology institutions, uh, city, I think you were using, uh, and then auditability would be, would be a helpful place to go. Um, I want to see if we can end on, on a vaguely happy note. 
Kevin, what, what's an aspect of the internet that still gives you joy? Uh, what's something that you encounter that uh, makes you feel the, 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 like you did those days when you were running your own GeoCities page? Um, the other day, it's actually funny, it, it was a Facebook engineer side project, but there was a Facebook uh, engineer who came out with this Winamp skins library. Did you see this going around? Yeah. Uh, which just, I just scrolled through that thing for, for hours. I mean, it was like, it was like opening a time capsule of all these skins for the Winamp MP3 player, which I, I and everyone else used in the early days. Um, I, there are some things on the internet that still give me joy. I really, um, I'm liking, I've been trying to do more um, uh, live streaming with some of my colleagues and, and uh, in particular, my colleague, uh, Charlie Wardsell and I have been trying to make a run at being, becoming Twitch streamers, um, which ah. is fun. And uh, it's sort of a new, it's a, just a new mode for, for both of us. And it's sort of fun and weird in the, in the ways that make me um, excited um let's see i'm really um into watching like archival youtube videos mm. uh, like doing a little bit of like time warp so i'll watch like you know an nba game from 1996 and uh and uh just you know put that on and and it, anything to get away from 2020 right exactly exactly yeah. so i think escapism is still one of the internet's strong suits and uh and i i still use it for that so, um, Kevin, it's really a pleasure to have you on here. Um, I and so many other people rely on the reporting that you're doing. Uh, and it's really helpful uh, to, to ask you to, to take a little bit of that uh, 20,000 or 40,000 foot view on, on what ails us in this space and, and what might be done again. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for, uh, for being with us on Reimagining the Internet. Thanks so much, Ethan. This was great. Reimagining the Internet is hosted by me, Ethan Zuckerman, and produced by Mike Sugarman, who also composed our theme song. Visit publicinfrastructure.org for more information about the launch of our research center at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in spring 2021. And please subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. <laughs>